0: start out today with a, a little visual taste test. So when I put up my right hand and say yum, those of you who feel yum, please shout out yum. Those of you who, when I put up my left hand and say yuck, feel yuck, please shout out yuck. Got it? Pretty straightforward. Cilantro. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Although, yeah. Near universal acclaim for cilantro. Get up. Get up. OK, OK. Uh, science tells us that there is a genetic component to the taste for cilantro that some people, because of a genetic variation, it tastes like soap to them. This is one of my favorite herbs. So these people do not deserve our scorn. <laughs> they deserve our pity. <laughs> Next one. Brussels sprouts. Yum. Yum. Okay. All right. A little, getting a little closer to balance there. Uh, for many years, especially as a kid, I would have been on the yuck side. Now it's definitely a yum. I roast them just kind of like this every chance I get. Next. Caviar. Yum. Okay. Hmm. Yum. Maybe some neutral there as well, too. I'm definitely on the yum side with caviar, although I am very grateful that there are some yuck people, uh, because it gave us one of the funniest scenes from movies in the 1980s, if you remember Big. Remember Tom Hanks, the 12 year old in the body of the 30 something year old, and he has his first adult party after this switcheroo, this magical thing that happens, and he's wearing the most absurd white tux you've ever seen with tails that go down to the ground, and he's got a top hat too, and he doesn't know what caviar is, and he puts it, and he puts it on his tongue. So, that there's a yuck has provided us with some laughs. Next, gorgonzola, blue cheese. Now, I am a foodie, although I am definitely on the yuck side here. To me, gorgonzola smells like I envisioned feet tasting. So, nothing against any of you. And the final one. Gefilte fish. All right, I right, not good. Yeah, very you're like 9:30. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I grew up in a in a culturally Jewish household and we had a lot of uh yearly, you know, uh, Seder celebrations, the uh annual meal that uh ritually remembers the release from bondage, slavery thousands of years ago from the ancient Israelites in Egypt. And I have to tell you that my love of gefilte fish just blossoms because at least is the same ratio any Seder table I've ever been around, where 20% of the people love it, if that many, 80% of the people don't, and I get to scoop up all of the gefilte fish from everyone who cannot stand it. So thank you. I want to have Seder with all of you. So uh, there's a teacher named Sylvia Borstein, and she is one of many uh, Jubus, Jewish Buddhist teachers who have uh, graced my life with their teaching. And she tells a story about preparing for a uh, family Seder with her granddaughter one year. They were putting out all the plates and all the ritual symbolic foods, and they put out the gefilte fish. And that the horseradish next to the gefilte fish and her granddaughter put some of the horseradish on the gefilte fish and exclaimed this with a face that probably looked like that. I never knew you could take a truly terrible thing and make it even worse. <laughs> oh, I disagree. I, I love that phrase. I never knew you could take a truly terrible thing and make it even worse. Sylvia's fellow uh, teacher, Sharon Salzberg, uses this as a teaching instruction story in a recently posted blog with the title Sometimes Some Things Just Hurt. Some Things Just Hurt. She uses... Sylvia's granddaughter's experience as emblematic of something many of us have a tendency to do. Particularly with resistance around feelings we don't want to be feeling. Afflictive stuff. Anger. Unhealed grief. Loss. Sadness. It's a tendency I've witnessed within myself over the years and a tendency I've witnessed in many people. Because we don't like feeling these things, we resist them. And so we can take a truly terrible thing And make it even worse. Maybe it's because many of us are attuned to ways of uh, wanting to fix our lives. Or we overthink things. Or maybe we don't give ourselves time and space to feel difficult feelings. Or maybe the ways that our lives are organized around us, we don't feel we have the time or space to feel difficult feelings. And yes, that does end up making it worse. I think particularly with sadness. Sadness in the face of loss. Sadness in the face of death, of endings, that when we resist this very natural sadness that is a part of life, we end up perpetuating these things that we do not want. And in resisting them, we keep them around. And sometimes they kind of curdle within us and block up the arteries in our spiritual hearts. By the way, this is the lesson in Inside Out, if you saw it this past summer. That's exactly the lesson. Sadness resisted is sadness we cannot learn from and sadness that will not help us grow. Now, you know, I think there's limitless number of reasons why this is a human tendency. And some of them are certainly cultural. There's a, a colleague of mine named Peter Bulata who was born and grew up most of his life in Canada and yet has served congregations in America, and I think he has a, a strong insight into a culture that's not quite his own that he spent some decades in. He wrote recently about a kind of American attachment to sunny side, to the optimism, to always wanting to have things be okay, and a resistance to what we might call the darkness. He says we are encouraged to move into that new terrain of a new life as quickly as possible. Culturally, we are imbued with the desire to put on a happy face. Americans are famous for our optimism. The pursuit of happiness is cherished as a God-given right. Depression, loss, grief, so often these are thought of as merely private experiences, hidden and to be quote-unquote resolved just with the help of professionals. I may not have heard it, heard myself saying it, it's a thing. Sometimes people speak aloud. After someone we know has had a really tough loss, a death, a grief, something devastating happened to them. And we say, Oh, they're they're doing okay. They're doing okay. They're they're back at work. They're back at work. They're doing okay. And by the way, sometimes getting back to work is a wonderful thing. But that's not really what the healing after loss is about. I think it's the take the question deeper and not just say they're doing okay, they're back at work but also ask are they back to life not just going through the motions but actually in touch with their lives once again it was about 21, 22 years ago when I first became involved in spiritual community in a serious and committed way This was the Unitarian Church of All Souls, the church that eventually ordained me to the UU ministry. And it's on the upper east side of Manhattan. It's a very, very fancy kind of place. And I got to know a guy in the congregation who was about 20 years my senior at that point, so about my age right now. And he was well-respected within the congregation. He was a leader within the congregation. And what I came to know about his story is that in the last few years, he had suffered a number of truly awful losses including the death of his wife whom he loved dearly a number of other heartbreaks along with that as well too and again this guy was well respected and he was so i remember him uh, you know the way that we index success in areas like you know pretty side of manhattan or chester county you know, he was successful in that way well educated bright well liked had a successful career he was a success and I was talking with him one day at the coffee hour, just in the same way we're going to be at coffee hour in just a bit. And as I was really curious about what was bringing people into congregational life, and by the way, I'm still really curious about that. I asked him, what, what brings you here? Why do you come here every week? And he paused for a moment. And I remember him closing his eyes he took a breath. And he said, I come here because here it is okay for me to be sad. It's okay for me to be sad here. He went on to offer a little bit more. He said, you know, at work, my family with my kids it's not really okay for me to be sad i can't express it what he was talking about is that the very competencies that he had and he had many of them the very competencies that allowed him to manage his life were the very things that kept him from feeling his life and so he came to that Very proper Upper East Side Unitarian Church. Because it allowed him to feel sad. To access his own sad heart. That was crying out for attention. And for care. By the way, I think any relationship, any place, any people, any individuals that allow us to be okay. With just being sad. They are an absolute gift to us. I opened with uh, some images of food. You might remember that all of seven minutes ago. I think in food terms a lot because I cook a lot. I'm something of a foodie. And there's a product called, uh, maybe you've seen it in the coffee shop, called Simple Syrup. You ever see Simple Syrup? You know, a couple pumps of it. Uh, They sell it online. You can get it for $5, $10. I'm sure William Sonoma will rip you off for even more than that. You cannot be able to cook anything at all and make simple syrup. Trust me on this. It is equal parts sugar and equal parts water. And then you boil it and then you simmer it for three minutes and poof, you have simple syrup. It costs cents to make, probably 15 cents in raw materials to make. Please don't buy it. Ask me, I'll make it for you if you don't trust yourself. (laughs) I think that simple syrup... Is like. Simple sadness. Simple syrup. Has water. And sugar. Stirred into a drink. It sweetens. The other picture there. Simple sadness. It has water. And it has salt. Allow tears to flow freely. And it heals. This is why simple. Syrup and simple sadness are kind of the same. They are easily absorbed. Absorbed into us, absorbed out of us. But here's the thing when sadness becomes unsimple, when we refuse sadness's invitation, we become sad on a whole other level. We become sad not to be sad which means that we won't allow ourselves to feel sad. I mean, this is so much of the work I've done in my own life and work that I know many of us continue to do. It's with those unmetabolized bits of sadness, of grief, of loss that have been perpetuated sometimes over decades, sometimes across generations, and we're stuck there. This is, by the way, what I think Pablo Neruda was pointing to when he said... There is a the sadness, a kind of sadness of never understanding ourselves and threatening ourselves with death. This is not simple sadness. This is the sadness of a calcified heart, if you will. A sadness of being at distance from our own lives. By the way, I think understanding sadness has very little to do with like comprehension most of the time. I think it has to do with actually flipping those terms in that compound word. And as many spiritual teachers I've known say, it's not about understanding. It's about standing under. Allowing ourselves to be with the sadness as it arises and to allow ourselves to simply feel it. This is how sadness, as painful as it can be, can also be simple and allow us access to our own hearts, which is what so many of us really want. It's like this, you know. If you know this image from the internet, I has a sad. It's so cute. The little face. They put it on kittens. Sometimes they put it on bunnies as well, too. And yeah, it's misspelled, like a little kid. I has a sad, which of course is not English in any way whatsoever. But that's the point. It's like this genuineness to it. But here's the thing. It's a wonderful teaching, not just because it's cute. It's a wonderful teaching because actually I think it gets more at the heart of what simple sadness is really about. It's not that fear that many of us have had or have that I know I have had. I am a sad person, a noun, a thing, this over-identification. Or I'm afraid if I allow myself to be sad right now, I'm going to be sad all the time and I'll never stop being sad. But I love the I has a sad. It's a thing. It's a thing that's happening to me right now. And I can sit with it. just a simple verb. And when I can has a sad, I can notice something important is happening. And something that, by the way, also happens to everyone. Everyone has a sad. Sometimes. So years ago at that... Um, at that Unitarian Church of All Souls in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, I metaphorically crawled in there as a 24-year-old because I didn't have any place to go. I was grief-stricken. My own heart was calcified after a devastating loss in my own life, a series of them, actually. And the not being sad had taken its toll with me in the form of other things that were very painful. And one Sunday, one of the ministers there told a story about a family in that congregation some years ago, two parents, actually, two parents who experienced that most awful of losses: the death of a child, that can, especially in places like the Upper East Side of Manhattan or in Chester County, can be socially, not internally, but socially, culturally, can feel like a scarlet litter. People don't want to talk about it. The loss that dare not does not speak its name too often. And, of course, then the sadness and the pain isolates. The ministers, though, told this story about this family, these two parents. And the minister said, of course, when the parents tell this story, of course they would give anything in the world to have their beloved child back. They would have done anything in the world to have their child still with them. But that was not and is not the fact of their lives. And so, quoting from one of those bereaved parents, the minister said, knowing that I wish this hadn't happened, but it had happened and did happen. Now when I'm at work, and a coworker who I know has suffered a loss a painful end, a death. I stop what I am doing and I ask them how they are doing. I put my stuff to the side. When someone I know has a death or a loss, I'm going to be the first one to bring them a casserole if they need something to eat. This is the realization of the core universalist truth. The non-dogmatic but absolute truth of life as I know it. That we are already a part of a love that is so special that we do not need to be special at all to be loved. And when we allow ourselves to integrate that love into our lives, it forms us. It shapes our lives day by day by day. One of the ways it does this is by helping us get over the illusion of our isolation. That somehow we're totally unique in our pain or in our loss. It's one of the reasons for the last number of months I've been working with one of Jesus' most controversial teachings. One of his most countercultural teachings that people on the right wing, left wing, I don't think anyone likes this teaching. And I don't like it much either. That's why I've been working with it. He said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And I believe he is absolutely right. Because it is perhaps by losing that which I believe to be just mine alone in my own unique experience, my private pain, my private grief, my private sadness, that in fact I do inherit relationship with. With the entire world. We can see into the heart of reality. And at this end of universal loss and universal love, that this can be where we start from every single day. As imperfectly as we do it, this is how we can start every single moment. From this place of seeing into the heart of reality. We get what so many of us are searching for. Perspective. We want to see our lives clearly. I mean, occasionally when kind of mass tragedy or mass trauma happens, we kind of put aside our stuff for a moment and we say to each other, this is important. Puts it all into perspective. I'm not going to sweat the small stuff as much anymore. Then, you know, we get back to work, if not back to life. And we forget. And we lose touch. So this is what I think all true spiritual practice is really about. Having right view. Right perspective. Remembering what really matters. It is why both the musician Ryan Adams and my colleague Jim Ford, who is both a UU minister and a Zen priest, says we are lucky if our hearts will break. Because then we will see clearly. And I will see my life. And I will be able to see your life. And I'll be able to see life. And we, all of us. We'll be able to enter into the great pain that is all of ours. And we will be able to enter into the great sadness that is all of ours. And we will be able to enter into the great healing that is all of ours. And we will realize what was true then is true now. That we will enter into the great love that is all of ours. And that we already are. Amen. May you live in blessing. Pray with me if you would. Simple spirit, let us not make you into something that your presence is not. Complicated, abstract, conceptual. The way we hide ourselves from you is the same method by which we hide ourselves from ourselves and from each other. There is immediacy and intimacy in this life, this day, this breath, right here, right now, not for another time or another place. But here. Simply. It is contained in hands that hold, ears that listen, eyes that can see, and hearts that open. May we be people who live simply. Our sadness, our joy, our deaths, our lives, all of it. May we live simply. Amen.